Welcome to Sophos Security Chat Chat number 187 for the 25th of February 2015, the Cryptography Edition. I'm John Shire again, filling in for the unwell Chester this week, and joining me on the podcast is, as always, Paul Ducklin. Welcome, Paul. Hello, John. All right, so it's a little bit of a frigid uh, day where I am today. I'm thinking that uh, maybe we can warm ourselves up with a little bit of cryptography talk. Yes, it's funny how that seems to have dominated the news, at least as far as you and I are concerned with our security hats on, um, over and above the, you know, the usual malware disaster stories and data breach stories. Without further ado, let's dive into it. And the first thing I want to talk about is this uh, free BSD random number generator bug, or as you coined it, the yarn bug, the yet another random number bug. It seems to have stirred quite a bit of controversy at least in our comments, can you take us through a little bit and, and explain exactly what uh, this is all about? I'll be quite honest. It's a kind of pre-release version of FreeBSD, not the one you're supposed to have in production. And that's why we had some hostile FreeBSD experts in our comments say, oh, you shouldn't have written this story. It's not really a problem with FreeBSD because it's not really a released version, even though you can download it. And it's not really a version, even though it has a version number. It's just we're working for the future. But what happened is that inside the kernel itself, the random number generator had a bug that was caused by the fact that it forgot to call the code when you create a new random number generator sequence that initializes everything. The thing, if you like, that stirs up the bucket of slurry to make the random numbers come out unpredictably. And of course, random numbers are absolutely vital in cryptography. So the FreeBSD guys were forced to warn people about this. What was very good about the warning is they also said, and by the way, guys, if you've generated any cryptographic keys, for example, SSH keys, regenerate them. Because if somebody can work out what a random sequence was from the past, they may be able to guess what your keys were. You hit the nail on the head when you talked about the randomness being absolutely essential. I think uh, I, I liken it to being sometimes the, the linchpin of cryptography. The, the thing that really makes the cryptography work, makes the secrets secret, is that randomness that you can inject into, uh, into the bitstream at the beginning. If you encrypt the same file on two different days using the same secret key, which you might well do, you don't want to get exactly the same output. Otherwise, somebody who looks at those two files will go, hey, they're the same file. They don't have to know what's in them, but they can at least tell that they absolutely match. And the whole idea of encrypting them was that they tell no message at all to the outside world. And the only way you can do that is by not just having your secret key, but having a random session key or a nonce, number used once as it's called. And the thing about a nonce is that it really must be a number used once. And so when we talk about keys and we talk about certificates, which are also cryptographic entities, we start to think about another big story. Oh dear, I know where this is going. It's super and it helps you fish. <laughs> So some of our listeners might have heard of the Superfish controversy. What we found at the beginning of last week was that there was this piece of adware installed on a bunch of computers that uh, was doing HTTPS or SSL inspection or TLS inspection, however you want to call that, for the purposes of injecting ads into your browser. That alone is a, 
a bit of a, a no-no in our circles. But the thing, upon further reflection and inspection, we found that, uh, well, there's a certificate that was being used. Okay, that's how you do that kind of thing. So not really that much of a, a stretch there. But what we found again, and by we, I mean the, the community, was that the certificate was poorly secured. And so when we talk about doing encryption properly, it appears that it really wasn't. Yes, it's one thing to install a security product that has an option that you can turn on. The Sophos Web Appliance has this, for example, which says, I will terminate your HTTPS connections early, decrypt them, and then re-encrypt them on the other side and go on to the real site. It's called key bridging. It's called decrypt, recrypt, or as many of our listeners will know of it, it's called man in the middle. So it's, as I said, it's one thing to do that for security purposes where you turn it on if you really want to and you're aware of the fact that it's sort of breaking the sanctity of TLS. It's quite another thing you can say to do it so you can look in traffic for advertising purposes. But what was the real problem, as you say, with Superfish is that when you do this man in the middling, you have to create what's essentially a fake certificate for the site that you want to go on to and hand it back to the browser so it thinks it really is connecting, say, to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Because your browser is indeed expecting a secure connection, right? Yes. Uh, so what the man in the middle device has to do is to create a fake certificate every time you visit a site. And that means it has to sign it. So it has to have some kind of a private key. And in the Superfish example, the company that they bought this agent from uses one root certificate with a simple, now very well-known password for every computer on which it's installed. So once you know what that certificate is, and once you know what the password is, you can create your own fake websites, HTTPS websites. Uh, you could also use it for code signing, so you could sign your malware if you liked. You could pass that back to any computer with this stuff installed. And because it trusts these fake certificates, they'll automatically work. That's the gaping security hole, that there's this private key that is using this very special meaning of private, which is publicly known and widely distributed. <laughs> and that really is the shockingly terrible aspect of this, this whole story. And, and it goes beyond Superfish, as, as we said the, at the beginning, which is many other programs now, as, as we've seen the story develop, are also using this same technology from the same manufacturer. Apparently with the same key and the same password. Right, exactly. Not only is this a problem for, for this one story, but now we need to look around and see where, where else is this technology present and you know how else can it be exploited. I actually saw a story that claims to have seen this particular technique using this specific technology being used in malware already in the wild. Now, there's some other privacy issues that we were discussing this week, and uh, one has to do with the new app that's being rolled out by Visa in, in April of this year, which is aimed at reducing credit card fraud. And uh, the, the main gist of the story is that Visa wants to use your geolocation uh, so your your actual location in, in space, to determine whether a transaction that they are, are about to process is fraudulent or not. I think that this is an interesting story because uh, it does have some fairly interesting privacy implications. But John, the immediate objection is, 
well, what about online transactions? What does it matter where I am when the actual merchant might be on the other side of the world? And of course, if you look at recent massive breaches like you know Targets and Home Depots and things like that, ironically, it was online transactions which were fine there because the malware they had that caused the compromise was actually in the I am present in the shop uh, transaction processing network. So you can see from Visa's point of view, being able to say that you and your card are in the same place, it's a great idea. The problem comes when you look at how geolocation protection is done, at least in some mobile operating systems like Android, where to the best of my knowledge in the stock Androids, it's pretty much all or nothing. If you want to let Visa at your geolocation data to make your credit card transactions that little bit more secure, you're sort of opening up your location to loads of other apps at the same time. That may be a price that you're not willing to pay. Absolutely. One of the things I like that Visa has done is they've chosen the opt-in model as opposed to the opt-out model. You know, many companies who have done similar or like things in the past have not given their users that choice. They've simply just gone ahead and done it. I, I do applaud Visa for, for giving users that choice. The nice thing is that, you know, they, they are saying, hey, this, this will, in our opinion, reduce credit card fraud, but also make it easier for you to travel around and, and not be uh, encumbered by having to call us. Uh, at the end of the day, though, there's still that old trusty fallback of if you are going to be on the road and uh, you want to make sure that your credit card is not declined, that you can still phone into the company. So there, there's sort of the, the two ends of the spectrum here, the, the sort of Apple way of frictionless ease of use or the tried and true uh, method that uh, they've been using for years, which is simply call up your bank and say, hey, I'm going to be in Minnesota from uh, February 25th to the 27th, although I don't know why you'd want to be there. It's so cold. Said the man from Ontario. <laughs> so apparently intelligence services have acquired a large set of keys for SIM cards, and it kind of begs the question of why were these keys lying around in the first place? Yes, interesting story. Apparently one of Edward Snowden's revelations that's only come out now. It seems that the big response was, wow, you know, how dare they do this? So they, everyone was aghast at the audacity of the intelligence services. Uh, other people going, oh, golly, that could cost the company that makes those cards zillions of dollars. So I wonder what effect it's going to have on the share price. So there was a sort of financial angle. But my interest, like yours, was, hang on, why was it that easy? Why does this need a shared key? Uh, and it turns out that, in fact, SIM cards don't use public key cryptography, which would be a good way to solve this problem. And they don't support forward secrecy either, which is where you generate keys for each call, which cannot be recovered merely by sniffing the traffic, apparently to save on processing power. So they did the next best thing. Uh, when a manufacturer makes a giant batch of SIMs, they burn a secret key into every SIM, and then they keep those keys in a big bucket somewhere locked away in a cupboard, and when the SIMs get sold to a mobile phone vendor, then the bucket gets taken out of the cupboard and sent very carefully to that vendor who then keeps them so that they can match them up to the SIM. So unfortunately, you can imagine there's now a lot that could go wrong. You've essentially got three copies of the key flapping around. One's secure, the other two aren't necessarily. And that's what went wrong here. 
it's 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 one of these situations where we knew how we could do it well and securely at the beginning, but due to technology constraints, we actually had to back off a little bit and say, well, symmetric key encryption is good enough for this particular case. And it turns out that when something like this happens, it can kind of come back to bite you in the rear end. So to finish off this week, let's talk about a, a bit of a lighter story, which still involves a little bit of a little dose of privacy and cryptography mixed in with some um, anonymity. This week we we saw the release of this particular uh, search site, which is allowing regular internet users to have a, a peek into the dark web um, using a software or, or a piece of software called a Tor to Web Proxy, which effectively connects to the Tor network on the one side and allows you to access the results of the search on the regular internet. What's important to note is that this is in no way an actual secure way of accessing the Tor network, but simply, again, just a way of, of actually being able to see some of the content that is on that particular network. I'm curious to think of what uh, you think about that. The search may be anonymous and private, so far as Tor can arrange that, once it goes through the Onion City gateway. But I think a lot of people have got confused and they imagine that by going to this gateway and sending in their searches over the unencrypted regular web, that somehow that gets imbued with any privacy and anonymity which may exist after their traffic has gone through the gateway. Just a little reminder, that's not how it works. You have, if you like, a public statement that you wish to do a tour search, followed by a private tour search followed by a public reply of what was found. So what you're saying, Paul, is I should not be using this to uh, buy my black market maple syrup from. That would probably be a bad idea, and certainly not what it's intended to be used for. Now, the interesting thing is uh, where, where I can see this having some uses, as Mark Stockley pointed out in his article, is that it, it allows services that have a problem of wanting to remain secure and anonymous while still having visibility, mass visibility, if you will, to disseminate their product or their information. Uh, and, and as Mark pointed out in his article, uh, WikiLeaks is one of those examples. Um, not that I'm advocating WikiLeaks in any way, but I'm just using it as an illustration point for how this can be used in ways that um, are, in some people's estimation, a good thing. The bottom line is when someone says, hey, I'll give you some visibility into things that are anonymous, that anonymity doesn't automatically flood backwards onto you. So as always in security, measure twice, cut once. Think about what you're doing before you do it. Right. So the security properties of this particular uh, service are not transitive, as it were. Indeed. So with that note, we will conclude the Sophos Security Checklist Chat number 187. As always, for this and other security news, you can always go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. You can find podcasts at soundcloud.com slash sophos security. And until next time, stay secure.